Today's episode is brought to you by Curve, a card and digital wallet service. You'll be hearing more about Curve later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. I am joined by Colby Smith, U.S. economics editor for the Financial Times. Colby does a lot of reporting on the Federal Reserve. We're recording the morning of January 31st, and tomorrow, on the 1st of February, Colby will uh, be in the uh, Federal Reserve press conference and asking Fed Chair Jay Powell a question. So I am really glad to have uh, her here. Colby, welcome. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm doing good. Thanks. Glad to hear. So Colby, I want to know, what do you think tomorrow's meeting will be? What is sort of your expectation? And also, what will you be, what what is on your radar uh, that you'll be on the lookout for that when it happens, you'll say, aha, So everyone's really expecting a quarter point interest rate increase. Um, That's been well telegraphed by a variety of Fed officials. So um, it it seems like, you know, we're going to get this step down once again um, from the the pretty uh, large uh, interest rate increases that have um, you know, come uh, to be a common occurrence just in, in the last year or so from the Fed. Um, but we're now returning to a more uh, normal cadence of uh, interest rate tightening. Um, but I think the the kind of more interesting aspect of tomorrow's meeting um, and, and rate decision is really going to be, you know, what the Fed signals about um What's coming next? So, how many more 25 basis point interest rate increases can we expect? Um, you know, this year, how close is the Fed to wrapping up what has become, you know, one of the most aggressive campaigns in its history to raise interest rates? Um, have they softened their view at all um, on the terminal rate needing to rise above five percent for no cuts, um, you know, to be in play uh, for the entirety of the year? And um, and how they're really taking in all this additional um, economic data that we've received in the intermediate period, which shows, you know, a more mixed picture. Um, you know, we don't yet have this cohesive story of a, of a weakening economy, but we're getting quite close to that. Um, and so it'd be interesting to see kind of what they're taking in and and how they're kind of um, digesting all this new information and, and then what it then means for, you know, the policy path forward. So in terms of, you know, specifically the way in which they're going to be signaling some of this, um, we're obviously going to be hearing from um, Chair uh, Powell at 2.30 in the press conference, as you mentioned, but everyone's going to be dissecting around 2 p.m. Uh, the policy statement that's going to come alongside the rate decision. Um, now, in, in the past couple of months, and, and pretty much since the Fed first started raising interest rates um, in this tightening cycle back in March 20, um, Mar- March of last year, um, you know, they've had this phrase, the FOMC anticipates that ongoing increases in the target range, um, you know, is going to be appropriate uh, in order for uh, basically, you know, rates to reach a sufficiently restrictive level, and then, um, you know, which will help bring inflation back down to 2%. And so the big speculation ahead of this meeting is what do they do with that language? Now that we're kind of nearing the end point, do they, do they, you know, remove ongoing altogether? Do they change it to further tightening or additional increases? That um, There's a couple of variations that have been thrown around. But I think the, the the real question is, do they want to change the language at a moment in time when they're not quite sure um, 
you know, how much more to do, because if they if they prematurely change the language, um, it could kick off another round of, you know, easing financial conditions, which is something that, you know, they're they're obviously keeping a close eye on. And it could, you know, signal too early, perhaps that they're they're readying for a pause. Um, but if they, they don't change the language, I think some people are going to say, well, this statement feels a little bit stale. It's not reflecting the fact that, you know, we, we've had significant progress in the data over the coming months. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how, you know, the, the, the Fed squares these two things. Um, one way they could do it is to change that language about ongoing increases, but include something in there about the very high bar for rate cuts. Um, so they could do that by saying, you know, rates need to be held at a sufficiently restrictive level for for some time, which is, is what we've heard from Fed officials, you know, quite frequently um, and across the, the dovish hawkish spectrum, basically, you know, uh, in the past couple months or so. Um, so those are just a, a couple of things that that are top of mind. Thanks, Colby. So you know, a year ago, interest rates were at 0%. Now the upper range for the Fed target range is 4.5%. Tomorrow, they're going to hike it by 25 basis points to 4.75%. At every single FOMC meeting in the statement released at 2 p.m. and later, uh, 30 minutes later in the press conference, which which you, you've attended, uh, they the Federal Reserve indicates we expect that uh, as you say, ongoing increases in the target range will be appropriate in order to attain a stance of monetary policy that is sufficiently restrictive to return inflation to to two percent over time. Uh, so, if that the uh, exact sentence is in the statement tomorrow, it is extremely likely that there will be another twenty five basis points increase in March, which would bring the target range, the upper target range, up to uh, five point zero percent, which is where I think. A handful, maybe two or three uh, of, of, of the forecasters were in the uh, SEP summary of economic proje- projections, the dot plot. A lot of those dot plots were in uh, 5% to 5.25%, which would be an, another increase in, in June. Um, yeah, I, I, what does is, what is your gut say about, about the language? And can you also share just how thoughtfully the Fed crafts these statements to be dissected by, by people such as yourself, um, and how, if there is a change, it's, it's a willful, it is intentional. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so I think what's important to note is in the dot plot back in December, only two of the, the 19 officials, um, had, you know, rates topping out below 5%, 17. Um, so the vast majority of the committee was of the view that it was going to have to surpass 5%. And in the intermeeting period, we haven't really heard much of a divergence in those views from officials. So I think that if, you know, in the intermeeting period, we had heard, um, someone like Governor Waller or someone like, you know, President Bullard, um, some of these, you know, more hawkish leaning um, officials talking a little bit more about, um, you know, the need to slow or to uh, consider lags in the policy changes and things like that, then I think it would have tipped the hand a little bit to there being a more substantive shift in the statement. Um, Now, that's not to say that, you know, they don't acknowledge the fact that there's been progress. Governor Waller had one of the most notable speeches of the the intermeeting period um, right before the blackout, actually, on that Friday, 
And he said, you know, he made the case for cautious optimism about, you know, what's been going on in the economic data. Um, so they're acknowledging that things are, are a little bit different and they don't have to perhaps be as aggressive in their posture. But I think the, the thing that I hear most often is that, you know, they need to, to do this in, in a really kind of uh, thoughtful way, because if they tip their hand too early to signal a pause at a time when, you know, financial partic- financial market participants are already kind of questioning how much further they're going to raise interest rates, um, if you look at Fed funds futures pricing, um, we see that you know the terminal rate is is wagered to top out below five percent, and there's going to be two cuts by year end, or, or fifty basis points worth of cuts rather um, by year end. That's you know directly at odds with what Fed officials have said. So. At a moment where there is this divergence, where they're clearly concerned about financial conditions easing, where the data, you know, is still not telling this cohesive story, I think that there is this sentiment among people that I speak to that it's just premature to to make any substantive change at this stage. Um, now, as I mentioned, there are ways to kind of thread the needle and and, and acknowledge the fact that they're kind of nearing the end here. But um, it, it's really kind of a toss up as to whether or not they want to open that can of worms, um, basically, at a, at a moment when financial conditions are already easing. And the reason why they're so fixated on financial conditions um, is because it's critical to the transmission of their monetary policy. So we heard this from Chair Powell um, back at the December press conference. He says it's important that financial conditions you know, reflect the policy restraint that the Fed is putting into place. You know, we heard this in the December minutes of um, the minutes from the December meeting um, where officials talked about, you know, being concerned about an unwarranted easing of financial conditions and one that reflects, you know, a misperception about the uh, Fed's reaction function. Um, and, and I've spoken to, um, you know, several former officials, including, you know, Dennis Lockhart of the Atlanta Fed, um, Don Cohn, the former vice chair. And all of them say that, you know, a critical component of the way in which the Fed, you know, gets the economic outcome it's striving for is for, um, you know, financial markets and uh, to be aligned with kind of, you know, where they think policy is going to go. So, you know, that, you know, taking that all together, it kind of seems as though it might be premature to make any, you know, real adjustments to the statement. Um, But again, I mean, there's there's a lot of, uh, you know, good points on either end of that. Right. So financial conditions, part of uh, the financial conditions index is risk-free interest rates, which on the short end, the Federal Reserve has uh, ostensibly complete control of. But then there's also the dollar, there's credit spreads, and there's equity valuations. And uh, we've been in a pretty risk-on mood with uh, you know, stocks going up, credit spreads narrowing, and the dollar having weakened. You know, And actually, I think the S&P 500 is higher now than it was the day that the Federal Reserve did its first uh, 75 basis point hike in in, in June, which is, which is pretty remarkable uh, uh, to me. And actually, that uh, the disconnect between the hawkishness of the Federal Reserve and the optimism of of markets, particularly pricing in those forward cuts uh, in the future, which is which is very interesting. Uh, that was of, of such uh, note to, to journalists that actually it was in the December FOMC. The first question was about that disconnect between financial conditions. And I, uh, I think it was asked by Steve Leisman and um, Powell sort of 
dodged it, you know, some, somewhat nimbly. I mean, do, do you think that that question now will be asked again uh, uh, tomorrow and perhaps will it be asked by you? <laughs> well, I think it, it has to be asked, whether it's by by me or not, but but I think it will be. Um, and that's just because, you know, the Fed has highlighted this as an important, you know, tool for, for them in terms of making sure, you know, that they're on the way to getting inflation back down to 2%. Um, so at this point, if in December they're talking about an unwarranted easing of financial conditions, well, financial conditions have only loosened more since that point. So if they're worried about it in December, it only is natural that, you know, there would be some concern that 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 level of, um, you know, attention on these moves, you know, increases as well. Um, I think one important caveat is is um, that the Fed typically pays closest attention to mortgage rates. Um, those have, you know, perhaps not fallen as significantly um, or have the, the dissent, I guess, in mortgage rates has not been as um, quick and, and uh, you know, of such a great magnitude as, let's say, the rally in, in some risky assets or the narrowing of credit spreads and things like that. Um, but at the end of the day, you look at mortgage rates and they're about a full percentage point lower than they were in the fall. And that's not something necessarily the Fed really wants to see if they're trying to, you know, tame demand, um, especially in the housing sector. Um, and if you look at kind of new home sales and things like that, um, economists that, that follow this, they say, you know, it looks like they kind of bottomed out at the end of the year and they're starting to kind of firm a little bit. And um, that's not perhaps necessarily something you want to see if, if the overall, you know, um, direction of travel you want inflation to go is down. Right. And a lot of these loosening of financial conditions have to do with the forward cuts that are priced in. You mentioned two cuts priced in for just this year, just uh, for ending on December 2023, and I think up to seven cuts uh, by the end of December 2024. The Federal Reserve's line is, you know, we, we are not even thinking about uh, cutting interest rates this year. However, in the uh, summary of economic projections, they do show a, a somewhat moderation in, in 24 and 25. And actually, I think you had an excellent question in the September FOMC meeting where you asked uh, uh, about how in the summary of economic projections in, in September, core inflation by the Fed was projected to, to decline. However, there was rate cuts in the uh, on the on the dot plot. So it's sort of a the Fed is having its the Fed's own curve is, is, is somewhat inverted. Um, do you think that that inversion of the, that the Federal Reserve sort of indicated on the dot plot that they would cut is what gave the markets such confidence to sort of uh, move those forward rates down? So, so there are two narratives going on here. I mean, I think the first is is either you think that the Fed um, is going to over tighten um, and and you know push down demand excessively, cool the economy too much, and that's going to lead to a recession. And that's why you know there's such substantive cuts priced in basically from end 2023 onwards. Um, but another narrative that that I've also heard is that um, you know the inflation forecasts and expectations are just a lot more benign than what, you know, the Fed currently thinks. We heard that from Governor Waller. He said, you know, markets think that inflation is just going to go, you know, drop like a stone. It's going to be pretty painless. And, you know, we're going to not have to be as restrictive as as possible. And, you know, his point of view is, I really don't think that that's the way things are going to play out. Um, so there seems to be kind of a fundamental disconnect um, between both you know, the way in which the economy is going to evolve over the next 12 months or so. Um, 
And then second to that, I think there's also a, a miscommunication or a misperception rather about the Fed's reaction function. So um, most people assume that at the first sign of, of labor market softening or, or, you know, a rise in the unemployment rate, that they're going to immediately start to ease because, you know, that's what they've done in the past. And it's easy to kind of take past experience and lay it on to, to the current moment. But I think what we've learned in the last 12 months or so is that the Fed has kind of thrown out the playbook in terms of how it approaches, you know, a problem like this, just given that, you know, this is, you know, we have a pandemic, we have a, the war in Ukraine. These are not kind of normal, uh, you know, events and, and, and circumstances that, you know, we typically deal with. And so, you know, this rate tightening and in turn rate easing cycle might look different than it has in the past. Um, but I think fundamentally, um, there's a lot of time between now and the end of the year. And the Fed has said consistently that they're data dependent. Right now, it just doesn't serve them to say anything other than they're going to keep rates elevated for an extended period of time. Um, so much so that some people even think they're going to add that to the statement this time around, that rates need to be kind of restrictive um, for some time in order to get inflation down. Um, but, you know, a lot could change in the next you know, couple months or so, obviously, if the data turn, you know, more um, notably. But I think for right now where it stands, you know, it just doesn't make sense for them to to acknowledge that they would even remotely be open to cuts at any point. Um, and, and the last point on, on this and, and from speaking to some academic economists as well, there's a lot of fears, and, and we hear this from the IMF too, there's a lot of fears of a more fragmented global economy, one where there's you know, less globalization, there are more trade disputes, there are you know, a number of kind of supply-related um, issues that could uh, you know, rev up. And so in that environment where you know, there could be more cons um, you know, consistent price pressures, does it make sense in, a, in an environment where there is a, you know, quote unquote, soft landing in the U.S. for the Fed to really be, you know, cutting interest rates? Um, so th those are just a couple of, of factors I think that people are going to be thinking about. But there's definitely this disconnect that, that you know, the Fed has to grapple with. Absolutely. And I, I would say there's a disconnect between the bond market and the stock market because the stock market is forecasting a soft landing um, and that earnings will grow modestly, uh, but you know, not decline, whereas the forward uh, race curve is, is forecasting cuts. In in my book, I think the only situation in which the Federal Reserve would cut is a, is a pretty severe recession that takes the Federal Reserve uh, by, by surprise. I have a hard time seeing the unemployment rate staying below 4% uh, and, and the soft landing and the Federal Reserve cutting interest rates just because they want to help the stock market out. Do, do you have a similar read or a different read? Yeah, no, I mean, the, the, the threshold, I think, for, for pain is, is a lot higher here when they're dealing with, you know, an inflation shock as big as the one um, that we're currently in at the moment. Um, Governor Waller, this was actually a couple months back, but had, a, had an interesting point that, you know, the Fed doesn't really face a trade off in terms of fighting inflation until the unemployment rate is somewhere around 5%. I mean, we're at three and a half. I mean, that's a significant jump from here. And most economists say a full percentage point, you know, increase in the unemployment rate that, you know, very much dictates a, a recession. But ultimately, you know, Governor Waller, I think, has it right that that's kind of like the pain threshold when they start to have to think a little bit more about the, un the employment side of their mandate um, rather than just, you know, being so chiefly focused on, on the inflation, um, getting inflation down. 
Hmm, right. Well, um, I definitely want to ask you about the economic data that's, that's come out of the past few months. But but first, just my own curiosity, I have to ask, you know, having been in all of these press conferences, what has the sort of vibe been like? And let's say at the, I think, March 2022, which is the first rate hike and really sort of the beginning. And, you know, March was more hawkish than January. May was hawk- more hawkish than March. June was more hawkish than May. What was that process like? And, and sort of, uh, you know, were you taken by surprise? Uh, I mean, also, do you think that in the March meeting, Powell knew that, you know, interest rates would be going north of three, four percent? Or do you think that the Federal Reserve was just as surprised as everyone else? I mean, we definitely did not get a sense in March that this is how, you know, excessive uh, that, you know, the Fed was going to be in terms of raising borrowing costs. I mean, if even if you look at, you know, the dot plot, the expectations for, um, you know, the, the rates by year end in 22 or even 2023 were vastly different than, than where we are now. Um, and I think at the time, um, you know, once we got to the May meeting uh, and, and the Fed had increased, um, you know, rates by 50 basis points, we were hearing that, you know, OK, maybe a couple more 50 basis points would be in play. There was no kind of talk about 75. And, and I think at the May meeting when he was asked, um, you know, he said 75 was was perhaps, you know, not on the table at the current moment. Of course, come June, they're doing 75s and they've dramatically increased, you know, the dots in the, in the dot plot. Um, and then over the summer, we, we had this kind of debate of, do they even go for 100 when we got some of those terrible inflation reports? I remember the CPI coming in at around 9, 9.1% on a year-over-year basis, and everyone is suddenly like, 75 isn't going to cut it. They just need to get to a higher level and get there quickly. Um, so the, the, the sense of kind of drama and intensity definitely increased significantly um, over the course of the year. Um, and I think, you know, something that's an interesting, you know, thing to remember is back in March, right before the, the meeting and the rate decision, it was when, you know, uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. And Usually in periods of very significant geopolitical uncertainty, you know, the Fed tends to kind of hold back. It, it, it goes a little bit more slowly. Um, it, you know, maybe pauses to take stock of the economic ramifications of something like this. But this time around, it was like, we need to go. We're late on inflation. And, you know, there's no there's no point in delaying. Um, and, and I think if you look at kind of where we were back in March to where we are now, um, even in the December dot plot, what's so fascinating is that, you know, we maybe reached finally reached the point where the dot plot isn't going to be revised higher from here. If anything, it's going to be revised lower. And that's a completely different, um, you know, set of circumstances than the past nine months before that, because every time we got that dot plot, that line was moving higher um, and, and the inflation line was kind of of still staying too elevated and the unemployment, you know, expectation was moving up too. Um, so I think there's just been this big sense of, um, you know, the Fed has kind of finally caught up to, to where it needs to be. Um, and in terms of the vibe of the room, I mean, I think all of us are just trying to like keep up with what the Fed is dishing out in terms of, you know, how quickly they're moving policy and, they, they got a lot of flack for, for moving slowly initially, especially with the taper and, and, you know, readying for that first interest rate hike. But ever since they they kind of started tightening, um, they've really kind of kept it up in a way that I think has, has really surprised a lot of people. I mean, I don't think anyone was assuming that we would get four um, 75 basis point hikes um, last year. And, and here we are. Right. 
was there ever a time last year where do you think a journalist asked a question that caused uh, Chair Powell to reveal something that he and his colleagues did not plan on revealing? Where they sort of, you know, we, we got you. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know if there's been any, you know, gotcha questions, but I think anytime, you know, Powell is, uh, is asked, has been asked about, you know, the, the Fed's reaction function or, or how it's taking in new data, um, it, it's always informative um, for, for people tuning in here. And, and I think what has been notable is that they're also kind of sussing this out at, at the same way that, that we all are, you know, taking in the incremental data in the intermeeting period and, um, you know, really kind of assessing where things are. Um, I, I think that what people kind of perhaps underestimated um, was just their level of kind of resolve and how quickly they would kind of get going when they really needed to. And I just remember back in the, the kind of June to July meetings when, you know, people were really questioning them about how fast to go. It became, you know, quite obvious that that they were approaching this situation quite seriously. And I think that one moment in particular, um, I think this was maybe back in the in the September meeting, um, there was kind of a question on over tightening versus under tightening fears. That's something that's come up in the minutes quite a lot as well. And, you know, at that point, um, the Fed has been much more concerned about under, um, much more concerned about underdoing it. So not tightening rates enough and letting inflation kind of get out of control, leading to an unanchoring of inflation expectations um, versus, you know, overdoing it. And, and Powell said something along the lines of, well, we know how to kind of deal with a set of circumstances when we overdo it. We can just cut interest rates. Um, it's a much more difficult situation for us to deal with if we, you know, let inflation kind of get out of control. So that was kind of an important tell as to, you know, which way the committee is really leaning here. And I think that's why, you know, anytime anyone, you know, prices in or, or wagers that the Fed is going to kind of disappoint and um, and or rather back off of, you know, their more hawkish stance. I kind of think back to that moment um, and, and realize that, you know, the Fed thinks it, it can deal with over tightening more than it can deal with under tightening. So it's better to assume that, you know, that's, you know, where they're going to lean. Mm, right. Can you, can you talk about the process of forward guidance, you know, name of the, the show, the Fed's transmission of its policy to let the market know what it is planning so that the market can tighten and or loosen financial conditions without the Federal Reserve uh, having to actually do it. And there's the FOMC statement, there's the press conference, what Jay Powell says, there are the speeches of uh, Federal Reserve officials, there's the economic data and market participants guessing about how the Fed is going to react to that. Uh, and then there's also uh, um, journalists who report on the Federal Reserve, um, you know, and in some cases, perhaps like sort of leak what the Federal Reserve is, is indicating. I'm particularly curious in sort of when journalist has a scoop and that scoop sort of move, moves markets. Um, so, I mean, the, the Fed has, as you mentioned, a ton of tools in, in which it can, it can um, you know, express its policy views and, and get its views out there. I think what's notable is that, you know, what central banks, not just, you know, the central bank in the U.S., but also, you know, in the ECB and, and around the world, in July, they kind of said, you know, we're going to back off from forward guidance. We don't want to give these kind of incremental, um, you know, like, 
signals about what we're going to do in our immediate next move. It's gotten them into trouble in the past. I mean, we saw that with with Chair Powell just over the the early late spring, early summer. Um, he says seventy five is not being considered. We go to seventy five in in. Ju- uh, June, he says, you know, he doesn't expect this to be a normal process. We have four of them. I mean, it just became, um, you know, uh, just a losing game, really, to kind of prejudge the meeting. So come July, he was saying, you know, we're not going to do explicit forward guidance anymore. It just doesn't serve the purpose. Now, of course, the big counterpoint there is that, you know, a bunch of Fed speakers come out, you know, in the week after that meeting and talk about their their views on the outlook. Um, you know, we get the Jackson Hole speech. Um, we get the SEP in September. Um, so these are the ways really that that I think the, the Fed can communicate where it's going. Um, I think what's been not- more notable, though, however, about this tightening cycle than past ones is the fact that some of these meetings are more, quote unquote, live than I think people, you know, assumed or was. And sorry, Colby, what do you mean by that? What is a live meeting? Um, well, it's essentially where, you know, the rate decision is is still kind of up for debate to a certain extent. They don't kind of explicitly know, let's say, or they don't explicitly publicly endorse, um, let's say, um, a rate decision. And what was happening over the summer was that, you know, the data was coming in. Um, you know, so strong, so unexpectedly strong and so quickly that like incremental data points. And, and I know the Fed says they don't look at one data point. They look at a series. But there were moments in time when, um, you know, specific data points fundamentally shifted how much, you know, the Fed really thought it needed to do. I mean, that's exactly you know what happened before the June meeting. Um when they, you know, had previously signaled 50 and ended up going with 75. Um, There was that, you know, terrible inflation report. There was another report on inflation expectations as well. That was was on the Friday before the the Fed meeting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, And, and, you know, right now we've been getting data releases uh, just the way that the economic calendar operates. We, you know, in December, we got the CPI report on the Tuesday before the rate decision that came in softer than expectations. And, um, you know, Nick uh, at the Wall Street Journal asked, you know, would you have put, you know, deliver the same SCP if you had gotten the the CPI, you know, a week ago? Because the assumption is that, you know, over the weekend, they they've, are coming to, you know, grips with how much they're going to do and their forecasts, and they're not really changing anything that dramatically. Um, but as Powell said then, and, and I think has is, is proven true throughout the year, is they're taking in every possible piece of information at their um, disposal before that, you know, uh, rate, uh, the meeting on the rates um, on Wednesday morning and before the decision is announced at two. Um I mean, take today, for example, I mean, we got ECI. I don't think that's, you know, dramatically changing the direction of travel for the Fed, but they're taking that number into in stock as they as they kind of decide, you know, not, of course, the quarter point increase, which I think is widely anticipated, but how how hard do they lean in the hawkish direction um, at the press conference or in the statement if we have another sign that kind of the wages are, are rolling over to a certain extent and weakening. Um, so as Powell has said again and again, I mean, this has been this past year has been one where the Fed has been really nimble. And, and I think that's kind of shown up in, in the way they've handled, you know, sharing um, their guidance and, and also changing it um, in real time. 
Hey there, I hope you're enjoying today's show. Just wanted to let you know that this episode is sponsored by Curve, a payment service that gives you power over your finances. The way it works is that Curve is an extra layer on top of your credit and debit cards that gives you additional cash back on the rewards that you're already earning. Curve Card has no foreign transaction fees and you can choose to earn your rewards in crypto. You don't have to, but you have the option. Curve Card also has a feature called Go Back in Time where you can retroactively change the card used to buy an item after you made the purchase, up to 30 days after actually. A key concept in finance is optionality. When you have the option to do something but you don't have to do something, this can be very valuable in finance as well as life. And optionality is exactly what Curve gives you to do with your wallet. So check out Curve to get $20 once you've downloaded the app and made your first transaction. CurveCard is powered by Hatchbank. Terms and conditions apply. Now, let's get back to the interview. Yeah, uh, so I feel like throughout 2022, the, the Fed said that they're not going to do forward guidance, but I feel like it's it's a th- it's a habit that's hard for them to kick. And actually, I was, you know, wanted to learn more about the, the Powell pivot in very early 2019 uh, in response to the December 2018 FOMC meeting. So I actually was reading, um, you know, Nick from the Wall Street Journal, who you sit next to at the, at the press conferences, uh, his, his stories from December 2018. And in there, they said the Federal Reserve says it's going to no longer do five, four guidance <laughs> four years ago. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's it's, it's tough for, for them uh, um, to to uh Kick, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Um, the employment cost index came in today. I think one percent uh, mm-hmm. quarter over quarter uh, on an annualized rate. So that's I think what slightly of over four percent. Yeah. Now, yeah. Now let's turn to to the data. What do you think has been the most significant uh, pieces of of economic data? There's inflation, uh, and of course, headline CPI has fallen dramatically because of you know oil, natural gas, uh, as well as other commodity prices. But to what degree uh, is core inflation and particularly uh, wage inflation or wage increases, which, you know, some argue is, isn't key input and very related to inflation, uh, have, have, re- have remained um, sort of resilient? So uh, to, to what degree would people say, oh, my God, inflation has fallen from you know, 9% to 7%, uh, 6%, and therefore the Fed's pivot is, you know, four, you know 3%, here we come. Uh, yeah, to what degree is that reasoning somewhat flawed? Or not flawed, just incorrect. So, I mean, I think, you know, to take a step back, I think the in the aggregate, you look at the data and, and I, I think it's hard to point to anything other than the situation being mixed. And that's exactly what, you know, John Williams over at the New York Fed said in his final public appearance before um, the blackout period ahead of this meeting. Um, and, and essentially, I mean, yes, if you look at the headline figures, great. It's you, we see inflation rolling over. Um, but I think what is what is critical for the Fed in particular is they're looking at, you know, they're stripping out a lot of the, the stuff that they expect to fall. So, you know, they don't want to, they care about energy prices, but they've been descending. So they strip it out of their kind of key measure of underlying inflation. The same is true for housing. Um, so, um, you know, shelter costs, those rose quite significantly housing, rent, things like that. Um, and then they rolled over dramatically in the like latter half of 2022 as mortgage rates um, spiked. Um, but that takes a lot of time to show up in the data. So, you know, it's been, you know, an important driver of, of inflation um, just in most recent the prints, but people are expecting 
um, you know, in the next couple months or so for for housing to really roll over and that to um, help bring down um, inflation as well. But the Fed kind of knows all of this to be true. So they're stripping out those kind of inputs and focusing instead specifically on core services, X housing inflation. And that's, you know, what they say is the best gauge of underlying inflation. It reflects, you know, the strength of the labor market in particular. So it's not necessarily that those those views are flawed. I mean, I do think it's the direction of travel we're moving in. It's just that it's perhaps premature um, to, to say, okay, the Fed has this totally under control. Um, they should pause at the current moment and, um, and, and they should be done raising interest rates and, and perhaps maybe we should be considering easing. I just don't think the, the data is pointing to that, um, you know, just yet. Um, I would say that, you know, in terms of where the Fed needs to go, I think the labor market data is actually, you know, most important for them. Um, that's where, um, you know, they expect uh, to, to see pressure, price pressures, the, those persistent price pressures. That's where they say they're stemming from. Um, so we've only seen, you know, on the margin, some weakening of the labor market. I mean, Lael Brainer, the vice chair, pointed to the fact that, you know, um, Average, you know, hours for workers are, are falling. Um, temporary help is also falling as well. So I'm paying like quite a lot of attention to to those metrics because, as she noted in her recent speech, that's kind of the lowest bar for companies that are looking to cut their costs or um, or to you know be a little bit more proactive about. Uh, preparing for a coming downturn. So if we're starting to see that in those more temporary measures, um, it could well be the case that, you know, that's going to precipitate a, a larger, um, more pronounced um, slowdown in, in labor demand. Um, so I think, you know, things are moving in the right direction and ECI was, you know, ratified that view. But I just think that, you know, there is this worry that, you know, the data is just, you know, it's it's a little bit premature just to say, you know, things are are good and done and dusted. Thanks. We've, we talked about the disconnect between what rates are going to be at the end of the year or at the end of 2024 and what the Federal Reserve thinks interest rates will be. But I think the, the disconnect starts even earlier than that uh, because the, the market is pricing that the Federal Reserve uh, get to 5% or 4.75% to 5%, and the effective rate will be some like 4.9% or somewhere around there because it's in the middle. Um, whereas, as you said, only two of the 19 members thinks that the terminal rate will be below uh, 5%. So do you think the Federal Reserve's view will sort of clash with the market? And I guess in particular, we're talking about a 25 basis point hike, not tomorrow, not in March, but in May, I believe, mm -hmm. um, which would take it to 5.25% or a 5% to 5.25% range, which is where the bulk of the dots, but not all the dots were at December. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, what the Fed is going to say, and, and I'm sure they're, they're going to be asked this tomorrow as well, or Powell's going to be asked this tomorrow as well. Um, I mean, he's just going to say it's, it's too far out. I mean, thinking about the May decision, you know, on February 1st is just not going to give them the, um, uh, they're not going to have the clarity they need to kind of know that they're going to kind of ratify that move. I think the reason why people have kind of, uh, you know, coalesced around this idea that they could be done after March, it's because um, of two things. I mean, the data uh, they say um, will, you know, 
point to the, the, you know, the fact that they can actually pause after doing one more 25 basis point hike. Um, but also they have the tools in place in terms of, you know, them being able to issue a dot plot and having the SEP more broadly to back up their calls to indicate that even if they pause, it doesn't mean that they are kind of backing off of their right, um, you know, their monetary tightening campaign anytime soon, meaning just because they pause, don't price in those cuts or, or don't think that those cuts are, are you know, guaranteed by year end. Um, so uh, in terms of in terms of the kind of sequence here, um, I, I really do think that last May hike may, you know, that there is a chance that they don't kind of need to follow through with it. And we heard this from some officials as well, um, you know, in the intermediate period, they would love not to have to kind of have to push rates up further than is necessary. They're not going to just plow ahead because that's what they forecasted back in December, um, you know, that they need to do. But what I do think, um, so, so I think that last 25 basis points is less important than people understanding that they do not want to reverse co- course and ease by year end. If they ease too prematurely and then suddenly, you know, inflation steadies at too elevated of a level that they need to hike again, I mean, that's not something that they they want to do either. Thanks, Colby. And tell us about the individual members. There's Fed Chair Jay Powell. There is Vice Chair Brainard, uh, who is much more on the dovish side. There is Waller, who I know is important, and he's more on the hawkish side. And then the uh, voting members for change for 2023. So for example, Bullard, uh, St. Mm-hmm. Louis Fed president, he no longer ha- has a vote um, on the Fed. And now we have Lori Logan, we have Harker, Goolsby, and Kashkari. Tell us who are these incoming members and where do their, not allegiances lie, but what is their orientation? Are they more on the, let's get rates up even higher, or are they on the, hey, we can, we can, uh, Cut, 4.75% is, is good enough for me. Right. So so two of those members are actually, you know, quite new to the Fed. So we don't really have, you know, years of, of policy making um, decision and speeches and things like that to go off of. So Austin Goolsby, um, you know, he just replaced Charlie Evans over at the Chicago Fed. And I think this is his first meeting um, uh, this is his first meeting of the year. Um, the first, of course, that he's a voting member. Um, and we haven't heard from him in pu- kind of public remarks since taking over that role. Um, but the consensus is that he's leaning on the more dovish side. I mean, he used to be a top um, Democrat uh, economic advisor to the Obama administration. Um, there are, you know, other public statements show that he's kind of quite concerned about the um, labor market and the employment side of the Fed's mandate. Um, so the, the view, the Initial view is that he is going to be, um, you know, a more dovish addition to the FOMC. Um, now, Lori Logan um, is, you know, a Fed veteran, but she's played a very different role than, you know, what she's currently doing as president of the Dallas Fed. She used to run, um, you know, the the Soma. Uh, she was the Soma manager over at the New York Fed, so she was responsible for all things related to market plumbing, um, you know, financial market liquidity, things like that. Um, but, you know, so that's been, you know, incredibly helpful to hear her insights on kind of the whole QT process and balance sheet reduction and things like that. To wrap things up, um, we have uh, Kashkari, who was once one of the most dovish members of the, FO, uh, of the you know, all of the regional presidents. Um, he 
you know, was consistently calling for the Fed to move quite slowly um, in terms of removing accommodation after the initial COVID shock. But he's actually emerged as one of the most hawkish, you know, people now. He came out right in early January and said that he was one of the the Fed officials who thought rates should rise above five and a quarter percent. So there was about seven um, officials in the last dot plot who wanted rates you know, not just above 5%, but above five and a quarter. And he was one of them. And he's kind of said, we can't back off of this too early. The, the you know, the bias for me is to raise rates more, um, you know, after a pause rather than just doing nothing at all or, or cutting. Um, so on balance, I mean, perhaps it's a little bit more of a dovish Fed, but, but there are some, you know, strong hawkish uh, voices in there as well. There have been instances at last year's meetings where financial conditions were maybe, let's say, easier and looser than Fed Chair Jay Powell wanted them to be, and where he had some particularly choice moments of kind of, you know, sh- shutting the market down. Uh, I think there's a memorable moment from uh, the November uh, FOMC where a reporter uh, incorrectly um, said that the stock market was actually up, and Fed Chair Jay Powell had a pretty choice reaction to that. Do you think we'll, we will get to see that Jay Powell t- tomorrow? Um, so I, the expectation is that he's going to lean hawkish, right? I mean, he doesn't want, we're not at the the hard part yet, which is what Ellen Mead, who was a former top advisor to to the Board of Governors, um, said to me um, recently, um, you know, the, the hard decision whether to throw in that extra 25 is just not there yet. No one kind of expects that they're not going to do anything come the March meeting. It's That's going to be when, you know, they, they have to have maybe a more nuanced conversation about what comes next. But for for all intents and purposes, the point of this meeting is to is to make sure that kind of financial conditions don't ease further. Um, and in order to do that, I think Powell has to kind of pair um, the the downshift to twenty five, any statement changes changes things like that, with a pretty stern message that you know the Fed isn't letting up here. They're not close. They're not you know close to being done, and they're not going to prematurely back off of of what they've done so far. So I just I don't think the tone of the meeting is really going to be all that different than what we've heard um, in the past. Um, it just doesn't serve them at this point. Mm-hmm. And then if a journalist asks, which it sounds like it is likely about rate cuts in the rest of 2023, how likely do you think Jay Powell would be to sort of like tie the Fed to the mast of the terminal rate for the entire year and say, no cuts. Because the advantage of that is that financial conditions would tighten, perhaps tighten significantly. The downside is, of course, you kind of remove uh, the optionality to actually cut if there is a severe fall in in growth and recession and a you know, collapse in inflation. Um, and, and then if you do sort of not honor that, then, of course, the Fed credibility is, uh, is, is threatened. So yeah, what do you think the Fed's willingness is to sort of uh, pledge themselves to no, to no rate cuts? And also, you know, I mean, I feel like they already sort of have indicated to it, but they, it hasn't been a hard pledge, right? Right. I mean, the thing is, is that I, I don't think we're going to hear any declarative statement from Powell on a decision that they're going to be making in, you know, September or November, let's say, of of this year. I mean, there's just there's too much that could potentially happen um, for for them him to say, you know, 100 percent. This is what's going to this is what we're going to do um, come those meetings. What I do think that he's 
likely to do is to ratify the the dot plot delivered in December, um, which again shows no cuts for 2023. We heard that in the minutes as well. It, it specifically highlighted no participant thought rate cuts were necessary. Um, we've heard from Fed speakers that they they need rates to be elevated for some time, and what could happen is that is, um, you know, uh, cemented and, and added to the statement, because right now there's nothing in the statement that talks about the decision about cuts and the bar for that. Um, so that's one way to kind of strengthen the message that they're not going to um, prematurely uh, reverse course um, anytime soon. Um, but I mean, when Chair Paul was asked about this in December, he said, our focus right now is figuring on figuring out, you know, how much more we need to do. It's not necessarily about cuts, and and they're talking about policy decisions as part of, you know, a multi-phase process. And I still think we're so firmly in that um, first phase, frankly, which is, you know, sussing out how far we are from terminal and reaching terminal. The second phase is, okay, how long do we kind of hold at that level? And the third phase is, is, is okay, when do we ease back from there? So I just I just don't think that Powell is going to kind of pre, uh, prejudge the third phase of that when we're still kind of in the first phase. Mm. Uh, in Throughout 2022, very few questions at the press conference were asked about the balance sheet. Relatively very few questions were asked about the balance sheet. Um, well, I guess, let's see, during the second half of 2022, because obviously there's the, the, the taper and the tightening. You know, now that quantitative tightening is sort of you know, running in the background, um, you know, it's, it's kind of tough for people who aren't you know, you know, uh, very in, involved to, to know how the Federal Reserve thinks about quantitative tightening. Um, do you think that the Federal Reserve is happy that quantitative tightening is uh, you know, serving its its goals? Do they think they need to do more? Do they think it's causing problems? Uh, and also, do you, um, do you know why uh, the balance sheet is, is talked about so much less so than, than rates? Is it just because interest rates is something easier to comprehend and the balance sheet is more theoretical and sort of uh, hard to understand? So I think it's a couple of things. I, I mean, the balance sheet, first and foremost, is not their primary tool. I mean, they said this again and again throughout the process of both providing accommodation and also um, removing that accommodation that, you know, the, the federal funds rate is their primary lever uh, to, you know, exert any kind of um, pressure um, or stimulate the economy. Um, so, so I think they're quite happy that the balance sheet is a secondary kind of consideration for for a lot of people. But that's not to say that it's it's not important. It's an incredibly you know it, it's a pillar of their policy tightening plans. Um, it's just not something that they are you know constantly adjusting and and making amendments to in the same way that they're doing with the with the policy rate on a you know every six weeks or so. Um, so I. I think they're happy that it's kind of running in the background. I think the question, um, there's a couple of questions there about, um, you know, when do they potentially make any changes? Um, do they, if they pause rate hikes, do they continue on with balance sheet reduction? And it sounds like from, you know, what we've heard from officials that they're comfortable doing that. I think the real unknown is, okay, if they start cutting interest rates, do they cease balance sheet reduction because typically the Fed likes its tools to work together and in the same direction. Um, and, and they don't like, you know, tightening on one end and loosening on the other. That's a hard message to communicate. Um, so 
like that's going to be the big kind of unknown with QT. But I think if you layer on top of everything else that's going on um, in the U.S., and I'm thinking specifically about kind of debt ceiling issues, things like that. I mean, if come yeah, June, July, they're dealing with the potential U.S. default, I highly doubt that, you know, the QT is going to be running um, as as it is currently, they'd probably have to make some adjustments there um, as well. Um, so there are a lot of kind of unknowns about QT. I just think the the problem is is that, as I mentioned in my you know earlier, they're in these different phases with the policy rate, and that's why it's garnered the most attention. Um, but um, that's not to say that um, you know the balance sheet is not going to become um, you know the focus. Once, you know, we reach a kind of pause in the in the tightening cycle and the Fed is thinking about, you know, other ways it can it can um, manage, you know, the level of restraint it's exerting on the economy. Can you explain for me and um, you know, our audience what's going on with the debt ceiling? Uh, what are the salient issues and how do you think it will be resolved or maybe you think it won't be resolved? I think it will be resolved. I mean, I just don't think that we're necessarily careening towards a, a default, um, you know, without there being a considerable amount of effort on on all sides to kind of avoid that outcome, which we know, um, you know, from Treasury Secretary Yellen and any policymaker, frankly, that that would be a absolutely disastrous outcome. Um, but I think the thing with the debt ceiling right now, we have, um, you know, Speaker McCarthy meeting with Biden tomorrow to suss out if there's any kind of deal. The problem is, is that um, Biden has said he wants to push forward a clean um, debt ceiling increase bill, meaning, you know, it's con- it doesn't have conditions tied to it, whereas Republicans, they want to pair any increase in the debt ceiling with spending cuts. Um, so there are some like real fundamental differences in the way in which people think that, you know, they can come to some kind of agreement. Um, but um, they have a little bit of time, thankfully, until the pressure really builds. Um, we all think about this thing called the X date, which is basically the moment in time after all of the Treasury Department's, um, quote unquote, extraordinary measures are exhausted. And these are things like ceasing investment in some of their government accounts and things like that in order to carve out a little bit more borrowing capacity. Um, So Chair Yellen has said that those extraordinary measures will run through June. um, And the expectation is that that X date isn't until later on. That date can move quite a bit. I think the problem is, is that the closer we get to the X date, the more financial markets are concerned about, you know, there not being a deal. We can start to see short term bills and and other government instruments, um, you know, pricing a a little bit out of step with the rest of the of the yield curve. And, um, you know, there could be more volatility, things like that. So this is a major kind of unknown, I think, and could very well create a situation that, um, you know, requires some kind of response from the Fed um, or some adjustment to its policy plans um, at that point. Is there anything the Federal Reserve can do or the Treasury can do or market participants can do to sort of unlock the giant well of liquidity that's somewhat trapped in the reserve uh, repo facility. I think, you know, and as you can tell by my uh, hesitation, I'm not an expert in the plumbing at at all, but I think there's close to $3 trillion that is in the Federal Reserve's uh, reverse repo. So it's not Mm -hmm. a deposit facility, but it's basically like a deposit facility. Um, uh, So people just park their funds there and the that rate is, I think, somewhere between, uh, you know, it's in the, in the latter of, of the lower Fed funds rate and the, the upper Fed funds rate limit. So that, that level will change um, tomorrow. 
but you know, there's there's trillions of dollars in there. Can that in any way sort of fund the government and do, and do bills? Is there any sort of extension we can get there or, or no? Um, no, not really. I think it's kind of separate from from the whole debt ceiling situation. I mean, the thing with the with the overnight repo facility is is that's you know eligible banking um, institutions and and other you know money market funds things like that stashing cash um, there kind of overnight. Um, but but that's an overnight facility. It's not something that you know anyone would kind of tap for for the purposes of funding the government. Plus, it's only you know it's it's two trillion dollars, but it's um it's it's overnight kind of um. Uh, overnight dealings. Um, I think what people are more thinking of is what the Treasury can do in terms of prioritizing payments. So do they, you know, focus once we get past X date, do they focus on, um, you know, paying bondholders? So so maybe we don't have a technical default, even though that would be really up for debate, I think, with some credit agencies um, who would say if you're missing payments to, you know, you know, the military or things like that, that still constitutes, you know, not making good on your on your obligations. Um, the second thing is, um, and, and this has been floated in terms of what the Fed can do is do they buy default? Do they buy up defaulted securities, let's say? Um Chair Powell actually has been quite involved in he was at the Fed when these things, these um, debt ceiling, um, you know, standoffs have happened in the past. So if you look back to, you know, transcripts in 2011 and 2013, um, you can hear, a, a, you know, a, a broader conversation um, internally at the Fed about what they think they um, can and should do in the event of a, of a debt ceiling situation. Um, at the time that, um, you know, the Fed buying defaulted securities was brought up, Chair Powell or the governor of Palatham at the time called it loathsome. So it's not something that he um, supports clearly. Be interesting to see if that view has changed at all. Um, but but another important thing to note is the Fed doesn't want to come up with this, you know, plan B if the government defaults. I think that the more contingency planning is in place, at least publicly, the more concern there is that the impetus for policymakers to come to a deal and lawmakers to come to a deal is just going to lessen. Um, it's sometimes the urgency of a financial collapse and financial markets, you know, um, falling out of bed that forces, I think, people to the negotiating table. Um, so it's it's kind of, uh, it's a really dicey situation. The Fed definitely does not want to be involved in this at all. Um, but but those are some of the, the kind of ideas that have been floated. Mm. Thanks for explaining that. Colby, it's been absolutely great uh, getting you on Forward Guidance. Um, thank you so much for, sh for sharing your, your insights. Uh, thanks to everyone for watching. We will definitely be watching uh, you and Fed Chair Jay Powell tomorrow. Uh, people can find your work at the Financial Times. Um, and of course, they can find you on Twitter at Colby L. Smith. Colby, thanks so much. Thank you. Appreciate being here.